Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For today's episode, I was lucky enough to be joined by three guests. They were Derek Armitage from the University of Waterloo, Jennifer Silver from the University of Guelph, and Dan Akimoto from Florida State University. They joined me to chat about natural resource management and in particular, how governance can be integrated with qualitative measures and methods. I'll let them describe. So let's go straight to our conversation. Thank you all very much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Yeah, wonderful to be here. Okay, so uh, as we get started, you know, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the way um, that populations are managed, in particular fish. You know, what does that mechanism look like? How do we know, uh, you know, how a, a given fishery is doing? How do we know how many fish there are in the stock? So that's actually a really complicated question, in part because the way in which fisheries are managed around the world, even in within, um, you know, Canada, United States, Australia, within those different nations, there's a wide array of rules and regulations and, and methods for uh, assessing how many fish there are and, and the sustainability of those stocks. Uh, but generally, in a, in a uh, a situation where you've got uh, a lot of capacity, um, there's generally an application of uh, fairly complex quantitative tools uh, to measure how many fish there are. Um, and I think one of the challenges in, in managing fisheries is that often we have lots of competing objectives. There might be uh, obviously some ecological objectives, but also economic objectives. And increasingly, when we're managing fisheries, there's an emphasis on trying to understand a bit more clearly what some of the social objectives are for, for those fisheries. How do they relate to people's well-being, their cultural well-being, uh, issues like that. So it gets increasingly complicated uh, as we reflect on the changes that are taking place in a lot of fisheries around the world and how we're going to grapple with those changes in a decision-making context. And I, I guess the other thing I would say, too, is that on top of the sort of technical um, um, approaches and details. There's the element of sort of politics and that 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 can play into decision making. You know, you, there is usually, as Dan was talking about, um, you know, scientific advice given, and then there are managers and or politicians even who, uh, at the end of the day, um, sometimes are, are making decisions about allocation and that kind of thing. Okay, and you know, one of the things you touch on in the article as well is the role of compliance in uh, the management of fisheries and so on. Um, how does that play a role? Well, I mean, compliance is a, is a tricky issue because it has a obviously a, a technical component to it, and uh, but it plays a role in the sense that we 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 don't always understand what is shaping compliance. So there may be a, a rational decision among among people to say, you know, obviously we we need to comply with a rule about a fishery and things like that. But the reasons behind why com people comply with a particular rule can vary widely. Uh, it can be an economic rationale, but can also be, as we talked about before, some sort of a, a social component to it as well. And it's very difficult to necessarily get this understanding of compliance into our decision-making processes as, as effectively as we, as we might like. And in some ways, that's, that's, you know, there, there are technical challenges um, and management challenges associated with thinking about compliance. So you, know, you may implement what's called a, a no-take reserve or a rain-protected area. And if you have no um, individuals there to monitor and enforce uh, the regulations, it's pretty easy to assume that you may have a pretty low compliance rate uh, in uh, kind of obeying by those rules. 
at the same time, there's a bunch of fisheries, uh, for example, in the um, in uh, in Alaska, where the individual fisheries may be managed on a very small, like this can happen over a very short period of time, and it's, it's often difficult for um, the manager. It's a very tough task for the managers to actually um, open the fishery and close it right when they think they've got enough fish. Right. So monitoring that is a, a huge technical challenge. Um, that uh, it, you know, you may have compliance that's uh, intentional on the, on the part of the fishermen, or a lack of compliance. But you may also have a lack of compliance in part just because of the difficulty and kind of the feedback between how many fish are being caught and how many fish are supposed to be caught. So there may be incidental versus intentional compliance as well. But I, I think one of the reasons we were drawn to compliance as a kind of proxy in this particular paper is that, um, well, first of all, that it, it is a oftentimes um, kind of in our opinion anyway that that there are the way in which um, the social quote unquote the social was incorpor incorporated into modeling and decision making had largely to do with economic um, considerations and so what what um, compliance allows us to think about is sort of different ways in which um, fishers reasons why and ways in which fishers might be responding to um, rules in a fishery so I think that I, I suppose that in the paper we don't sort of name a specific um, uh, way in which there was compliance or not, but just kind of in, in naming it, it allows us to think in a more um, complex way about human behavior within the system. Yeah, and so and I agree completely. And, and I think how we were really trying to, to make use of compliance, because it is such a tricky concept, though, is that it's, it's very much a, a surrogate for those things that, that – influence decision making and how people respond to decision making and so you know if people feel that the, the rules that are they have to comply with are not legitimate that they weren't involved in making those rules that they didn't participate in those rules that those rules that they're complying with aren't flexible uh, that, that their own knowledge about the stocks and about the environmental changes taking place aren't reflected in those rules then they're far less likely to comply over time. And so that's what we were trying to, to do in this paper is find a way to use something that's, that's a little bit more tractable like compliance as a surrogate for these really messy and difficult things to understand that shape how we, we manage a fishery. You know, and then I guess in addition to compliance, another part of it has to be the way in which the system responds to feedback. So, you know, the various bits of information it gets about the health of current stocks and the numbers. You know, how are fisheries and other resource management systems able and successful or unsuccessful in dealing with that kind of information as it becomes available? Yeah, okay. So I, I would say there's an, a strong interest in this uh, notion of evidence-based decision-making in these contexts, but all our fishery systems are really characterized by a great deal of complexity and uncertainty because of environmental changes, because of changes in stocks, because of changes in how people are using a fishery. And so this it is very difficult for our institutions of governance to respond to these feedbacks, but it is it is crucial that we do so, especially in, in the herring fishery that we've, we're using in this paper as sort of an exemplar. All we have to do is look at what happened with the stock collapse of cod in the east coast of, of North America and, and Canada in particular. And as a classic example of where the feedbacks were not uh, were not brought into the decision-making context in, in a quick enough time, and the consequences for people and, and, and the stocks were, were obviously very severe. I would add to that that, as I think Derek has started to hint at, that some of that is just about the design of, this, of the system, of the institutional, of, of the governance system. So... 
um, in the in the context of, of evidence-based decision in fisheries in Canada, for example, um, there are a, a relatively narrow set of criteria, criteria and indicators that are, are formally part of the system to consider, right? So sometimes there is, you know, the feedback in which you, which might be providing the best insight into the rapid change or decline is not part of the formal uh, evaluation um, of the fishery. And so, so institute, I guess that that's, it's another way to think about uh, or a way to make the argument as to why um, institutional design and governance is a really important consideration in fisheries. Mm -hmm. and, and one thing to consider there is it's, it's really difficult to measure um, compliance, right? It's, it's uh, Often the ocean is a complex and pretty vast area, um, and having eye, not a sufficient number of um, eyes on the water to monitor um, those kinds of the, the processes that might give rise to, to you know people taking more or um, in, in extracting in a different way than they're expected to is, is a really difficult thing to, to measure. And what happens is that uh, you know over time you, you think you have a certain amount of clients. Um, and a few years later, uh, you have a statistical model that tells you actually you've had quite a bit more. Um, but that, at that point, that extra amount of non-compliance has been going on for some time, and, and the um, effects are kind of exacerbated. And so having institutional structures, governance structures, um, that can be either deal with, ameliorate, or be robust to uh, those kinds of uncertainties is something that, um, you know, can kind of, absorb uh, all those uncertainties that from a you know scientific standpoint are difficult to deal with and, and I guess I would just add if, if I can as well um, that you know when we're thinking about these these the way we design institutions and, and our governance processes well there's unfortunately no clear blueprint for success right so lots of different governance arrangements and institutional designs may yield different social and ecological outcomes um, depending on the context and so again as Jen mentioned this is why we're, we're really in this paper trying to reflect more critically on what these broader governance processes and arrangements are that reflect ultimately how we make specific decisions about a fishery knowing that there is no no clear roadmap or, or blueprint that's available for us to to help us with that process. Okay, and I wonder then, you know, what might we be doing differently or what man what might managers be doing differently um, if they were trying to create a model that was, um, you know, more resilient uh, to various perturbations or uh, in particular, you know, kind of uh, capable of incorporating the, you know, changing data as it came in from various sources? So, so one of the things, I mean, I guess to back up a little bit, one of the, um, the way in which a lot of... You know, Fisheries and a lot of expertise is we have we use something what's called management strategy evaluation. That's kind of the gold standard from an analytical standpoint for um, trying to understand the consequences of particular management scenarios. Um, and what that involves is we build a model of how we a uh, model of how we think the fish populations work. We build into that uh, a little model of how we think the fishery works. And we build into that a model of how we think the science and the managers work. I mean, and those are uh, we use computer systems to kind of um, evaluate this whole process and see what different outcomes are. Um, kind of like uh, financial forecasting or weather forecasting. It's full of uncertainties, and um, and one of the one of the things that we've tried to do in this paper is try to think about how to integrate. Um, 
different ways in which, uh, you know, at a higher level, governance structures may interact with those processes. Uh, in part, if there's, for example, um, a, a politician has some additional leeway in terms of thinking about um, uh, overriding individual management recommendations, those kind of things in, in building in um, our understanding about how the government systems work, not just the management, the fisheries, and the science, um, can be quite useful in terms of thinking about those. And now the challenge is, uh, you know, how do we actually characterize how uh, governance systems work? That's a, a, a quite a tricky thing. And that's where, um, so in kind of thinking about how to integrate um, governance and social considerations into MSP, um, we turn to literature and social science, political science institutions in particular, and um, in, in the paper, um, there are several of these governance attributes identified, and so these come from social science literature and, and research on institutional design um, and kind of informed how we thought about the con. So we, we use the term governance context in the paper to kind of try and capture the setting or the situation in which these models are being applies, applied and decisions are being made based on them. And so that governance context um, is characterized, could be characterized um, by these different attributes that we, we raise in the paper. So for example, efficiency, um, flexibility, is there the, the degree to which there's knowledge co-production going on? Um, and so that's the way we started to try and um, tackle this this essentially this integration or contextualization of MSE with the larger um, governance context. Yes, so there, there's, an, in my view, there's kind of these, these really challenging but really fun technical uh, dimensions of this problem that we're, we're grappling with. But what we also tried to do in, in, in the paper is kind of raise up uh, sort of provide a little higher level thinking as well and say, you know, if we're going to, if managers are going to, going to be grappling with some of this complexity uh, and these feedbacks and, and all this kind of stuff a bit more more um, effectively through time, we, we need to be thinking about some of these models, uh, obviously technically in new ways, but also reflecting on the fact that these models and, and, the, and the process that's involved in creating them is very much about um, co-production, a co-production process that, that we can get more people engaged in this, we can get more stakeholders engaged in these types of things. They become a bit of a, of a boundary object for more discussion and when we do that, that that's going to raise issues of, of people's values or their perceptions about what's happening and, and those kind of things become really important context for, for the decisions that are being made. And I suppose part of that is also the need to be thinking about these models as reflecting very tightly connected social and ecological systems. It's not just an ecological system we're trying to model or just a social system, but a linked social and ecological system, which adds to the complexity and, and the puzzles that we're dealing with. Yeah, the, one of the challenges I think on that front is uh, as ecologists and biologists uh, that deal with kind of building uh, models of how we think populations work, you know, we will spend a lot of time you know, we understanding these uh, the kind of nuances of the ecology of the management systems, um, but the expertise in governance is, is really something that's a that's um, far afield. And it's, and and one of the things I think we learned in this exercise uh, in doing this study was just even getting on the same page in terms of jargon and language and uh, of. Uh, uh, how we think about problems, even though we're working in the same space, is quite a challenge. Um, 
in part just because of the massive differences in backgrounds and these kinds of um, uh, transdisciplinary approaches. Um, there's quite a learning curve associated with it, and uh, and so that you know this field of MSE that's integrating uh, more nuanced social and um, kind of governance structures is is kind of a frontier in that way. Yeah, it sounds like something that requires a, a, a more of an interdisciplinary approach than you know you might have been traditionally uh, envisioned for this type of management. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would just I would just concur with what Dan has said is that a lot of the work of this of this paper um, at, at the front end of it was really getting on the same page with language and terminology. You know, um, Derek and I, as the social scientists um, involved in kind of um, leading it, had to learn a lot about um, MSE and try and wrap our heads around that and think about the ways in which some of the um, governance attributes that I was just talking about might um, be put into conversation or work with um, thinking around how MSE works or should work in decision making. Um, so yeah, the interdisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity was was and is key, and I think will continue to be um, as this as this field develops. And and I also just wanted to um, give a shout out to the Ocean Modeling Forum, which really was the um, impetus for us all coming together, um, and a much larger group than just the three of us, I should add, um, coming together around um, basically thinking about how human dimensions and social dimensions could be um, incorporated and addressed. Um, through a modeling, a quantitative modeling approach. And so it really was, what, um, two years or so we met, we, over a period of two or three years, we met in person um, four times as a large group. Um, and there have been various um, papers that have come out of the work um, that um, you know, the listeners might want to might want to take a look at to give a, a broader sense for what we've been up to. But that, but that really, that in-person time and... Um, thinking and talking together was really invaluable um, and even beginning to decide what we might tackle through the papers themselves. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember one of the first times we met uh, as, as a group, we spent several hours using words like management and governance, and it took us a while to realize we actually aren't saying the same thing in the room. I mean, when, when I say management, I have something in mind, and, and, you know, when some of our colleagues say management, they had something quite different in mind, and, and for us, coming at this, you know, all from, as, as Dan and Jen have mentioned, from very different backgrounds. You know, we have anthropologists and uh, biologists and modelers, and, and we have uh, you know, First Nations uh, representatives and, and industry people. We're all using very different language, and so it, it takes these kind of processes that we're engaged in to try and lead to outcomes like this take a long time to develop and to format. And really... It's some of those intangible things about building trust among our group and, and getting along with each other that really are important for, for outcomes like this in this interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary space. And what, you know, what, just to follow up on that, one of the, um, the keys to a successful uh, management strategy evaluation uh, program is you know, from, the, from the beginning, the direct involvement of stakeholders and title holders and managers and, and folks that are making decisions, but also uh, some of the politicians, um, in order to you know understand the degree to which individual scenarios that are being simulated in these computer models are either feasible, um, realistic, uh, represent the true objectives of, of what those individuals have, um, and how uh, maybe at odds for different parties. Um, 
for example, you know, we, one of the objectives here was to evaluate under what scenarios do you get really different outcomes than you might expect um, if you were just using a, a classic MSE uh, process. And um, especially integrating some of the objectives of uh, our First Nations partners and the managers at the same time, um, or at least the, uh, the stock assessors, um, can give you quite a different answer than if you had just kind of built uh, your simulation models in a in a vacuum outside of uh, the direct involvement with some transparency on um, on the end of um, those who are kind of constructing these processes. Okay, and I guess that raises the question then of you know what should what should managers do differently? You know, um, obviously there's the there's as you described there's the temptation or the or the the standard practice of you know, taking a model and, you know, simply applying uh, limits or management objectives objectives on that basis. Um, but what should they be doing differently to, you know, incorporate the viewpoints of the various stakeholders uh, and, and potentially improve outcomes? I, I guess one of the things that, uh, I guess our argument in this paper is that there being a lot of good things already, I think we want to make that clear. I mean, there's lots of great examples out there of, of people and, and uh, researchers and managers working collaboratively to try and figure these things out. Um, one of our arguments, I guess, and, and we tried to capture this in, in a little bit of a figure as well, is that at the different stages of, of these processes of, of the MSE and, and things like that, there is room for uh, thinking a little bit more broadly about you know, who, who's involved in, in these types of processes? To what extent are, are different uh, voices um, and values and perspectives being heard and, and are individuals from different backgrounds participating? To what extent are different types and sources of knowledge being included in, in these um, uh, in these evaluations as well? I mean, Jen mentioned one of, uh, you know, we, there's different papers and outcomes, but one of the really interesting outcomes of the Ocean Modeling Forum was this idea that, uh, you know, younger herring are going to follow older herring to back to spawning sites and things like that. And there's different lines of evidence about this. One is coming from fishery scientists and one was coming from uh, some of our indigenous partners uh, that also observe these kinds of things. And so, you know, the the opportunity here was, was for these different uh, knowledge systems to come together in the context of a decision-making process and, and management evaluation process like this. And so, this is really is, is, is key to, to pushing us forward is to make sure that more people are involved, more insights are, are being included in these models, uh, and that they are a, a source for, for broader discussions about these multiple objectives that are associated with any fishery. On that note, one of the things that I think is, um, is really valuable, just, just the process of involving uh, title holders and stakeholders in the process, uh, at least at, at, especially from the very beginning, is that if those processes uh, lead to um, outcomes that are um, integrated directly into into management, um, that process seen as more a little bit can be seen as more legitimate um, because it was directly generated from um, uh, you know kind of a more inclusive process. Uh, rather than one that excluded individual stakeholders or where they felt they didn't have an individual individual voice. Um, yeah. yeah, and I would I would just add to the to the question of what how how it, might we be thinking about um, fisheries management differently or how might might it evolve into the future? Um, it is 
my answer to this goes a bit beyond the scope of this particular paper, but I think there's a lot of really interesting work being done around questions of like the social objectives of fisheries, questions around, you know, um, if uh, harvesters are from small coastal places and and increasingly um, the access rights, you know, licenses and quota are, are um, consolidating out, outside of those communities. What does that mean for the economic future of smaller communities? So there are, so, and, and should fisheries be managed in a way to try to support um, economic sustainability and resilience in smaller um, communities and to what extent? So there are ways in which, um, and interesting conversations happening around sort of the social objectives, social and economic objectives of fisheries and the ways in which fisheries evaluation might better reflect if there is indeed a, a broad desire to have um, fisheries managed in different ways for different types of objectives, then, then how can you have um, fisheries evaluation sort of reflect those diverse objectives? So I think that that, um, again, a bit beyond the scope of this paper, though not unrelated, and I think it's a really important and interesting question um, that, that fisheries researchers are grappling with at the moment. Yeah, and what I, I think, you know, in addition to that, the, the, um, the ability, to, <coughs> excuse me, so the ability to characterize the degree to which there is a, uh, uh, how, this, how the government structure works into a computer model is a challenge in and of itself. So in the herring fishery, for example, in a few years ago, there was a scenario where the, the scientists recommended there would be a closure based upon uh, agreed upon historical rules. And those rules were simulation tested in, a, in something akin to a medicine strategy evaluation framework as, and that was seen as sustainable. Um, and there was, uh, the recommendation was a fishery should not be prosecuted, um, and yet there was the latitude uh, in uh, the minister uh, to be able to open that fishery regardless of those recommendations. Right? And that, um, that uh, leeway for the minister to be able to do that is, uh, is um, something that wasn't necessarily built into uh, the original simulation framework that evaluated that this ma certain management strategy is um, sustainable and adequate. Um, so being able to characterize uh, the structure of how decisions are made um, is, is a really important uh, aspect of ensuring that you're kind of capturing the nature of the system adequately. And Dan, that's what we really, why we um, also, in addition to compliance, took up um, inertia, right? That's right. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so and in this case, you know, we were looking at inertia, which is this idea that if, uh, if uh, you know, you've got a fishery that looks like it's doing fine, and all of a sudden it starts to take, take a nosedive, there's an economic incentive in some ways to buffer fishermen uh, or fishers against um, declining catches, right? So one might instead of just closing the fishery uh, pretty um, drastically, uh, ramp down fishing in order to protect the fishers uh, and the economic system against that kind of uh, dramatic disturbance. Um, and in our sense, that uh, in our analysis, that turned out to have uh, counterproductive, kind of counterintuitive outcomes, where it actually made the system worse. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's one of the, the bigger messages from from the paper that we were, uh, our group was trying to trying to convey is that. Now, even the most um, proficient models, I mean, are going to be full of these potential breakpoints, if you will, that are caused by the that broader governance uh, system or our governance context. And so, you know, whether it may be a 
as Dan mentioned, a ministerial decision uh, that comes about rather surprisingly or, or some sort of land claim or, 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 or resource claim or, or something like that. These are a whole series of, of governance processes that can create a breakpoint in that management process and that management decision-making system. And so we're really trying to figure out how to get that incorporated into these management processes, these MSCs more effectively and these quantitative approaches more effectively. Uh, and so we're using compliance and inertia as our entry point in that. But we, we still, I think, and that's what we're pretty excited about this kind of stuff, is we have lots of, lots of questions a long way to go before we really figure this stuff out. And so we're looking forward to grappling with this puzzle a little bit longer. And I guess that raises a question for me, you know, how do you do that? How do you work something like that into a model, you know, a, a possibility that some management action will take place that's, you know, far outside the expectations of, you know, what you would normally have, you know, is there a coherent way to, to work that in? Do you just, do you model in a certain percentage chance that, you know, X will happen if Y will happen? Or is this more you place an asterisk and expect that, you know, human beings will, uh, in running the models, you know, kind of hold out a, a possibility that something unexpected will occur? Well, so that's in the way we do management strategy evaluation for if we think or just uh, taking a step back for a second, thinking about the populations, we don't we don't know what's going to happen with a fish population. It's, some of these are incredibly dynamic. They're highly complex. There's all sorts of uncertainties about how, uh, for example, extreme events like El Nino's and various things might create, um, you know, perturbations in those populations. And you get the same, uh, I, I guess, pr uh, challenge with thinking about, you know, building models of governance. Now, one of the things done over the last, you know, many years is uh, fishery scientists have got quite good at modeling fish populations. Um, I think one of the things that is uh, a little bit more of a frontier is how do you model uh, a government? Um, how do you model governance? How do you model managers? Um, and, and that's, you know, a little bit of a challenge and requires integration with people who, uh, who want to study behavior, who study incentive structures and what that causes people to do. Um, and, you know, also an analysis of uh, the structure of the system. So many, in, in some cases, like uh, certain fisheries in the United States, there's not leeway uh, to uh, go beyond what's in the recommendations. That's basically uh, given by law. And if there's particular recommendations that are uh, that go through um, uh, the, the science panels, um, the fisheries are essentially bound by uh, having those some conservative limits on how much they harvest. Now, in other cases, you may not have those. And so in those cases, you may actually do some analysis of what happens in the worst case scenario, what happens in the best case scenario. And, uh, and that where it requires uh, kind of an integration of people who understand how those systems work, as well as some creativity on the side of modelers to uh, both simulate different out different different potential um, outcomes, as well as uh, be quite good and clear about conveying um, what that means to uh, uh, the, the managers and the fishery. Um, for what the kind of consequences it could be and why one might want to be, for example, be conservative if there's room for uh, going a little bit overboard on the fishery. I would just add, I mean, in, in this whole process of us trying to, to think through things, there's definitely a philosophical challenge that we're confronting, right? So, you know, trying to parameterize governance is, is something that 
a lot of people, a lot of social scientists would be very uncomfortable with. Context really matters. Context is key in all this stuff. I mean, for those of us in, from a social science background, you know, we're very obviously thinking about, about, about those contextual conditions that, that are, 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 are crucial. So, you know, we're, we're trying to take ourselves a little bit into a, this zone of, of discomfort as to how do we actually take some of these, these ideas that, that we, you know, we have disciplinary training in and take them into this space where we may have to do things that we wouldn't necessarily be comfortable doing. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's not a, a straightforward approach to this, but we do, as you mentioned, James, put an asterisk on a lot of this stuff, recognizing that we're we're trying to do something a little bit different. I don't know, Jen, if, if you feel the same way, but I feel like we, we have to deal with these philosophical challenges in this process a fair bit. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I would agree that... Um the idea that we could sufficiently capture the social complexity within the system in a model is one that, yeah, myself included, I would say there are certainly limits to that and limits to, given the, given the hard work that it takes to do that and do it well, um, you know, at what point would it, like what's the cost benefit trade-off of doing that? There's certainly questions around that too. I think, again, to reiterate the value in this, uh, one big, big value I see in this particular group that's come together, it is to get us to start talking some of the same um, language or at least to understand better where each other is coming from. And one thing that I really do think um, reads through in the paper is, is well, we, we did, a, I think, did a decent job of sort of saying we, we picked a compliance and inertia. Um, these are not the only ones. These ones are ones that we thought um, could connect or, or connect well to the governance attributes. So it made sense in the, in the context of the particular MSC we were um, thinking about or the, the um, example we were thinking of, about. Um, so yeah, so I think, and I think the value is that, that we got on the same page with a lot of that. And also in the paper sort of say, that the models don't operate in isolation of the larger system. And I, I, I think that that in and of itself as a message um, to fishery scientists and managers and decision makers is a really important one. I think um, a lot of people, a lot of them know that, although it may be not at the forefront of their minds when they're doing the really complex and technical work that they are. But that, but that again, that point that the models don't operate in isolation from the, um, the system, social and ecological system in which they're um, working is a really important point. Although maybe it sounds simple, but I, I think it is really crucial. Okay. And then I guess I'll ask, um, you know, finally, what's next for this work? Um, you know, this may be through the Ocean Modeling Forum or, or through some other uh, body or just individual work. Feel free to answer however you'd like. Um, but, but what's next uh, for this field and what should we be looking out for in the future? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a, a great question. Um, I think in, in the paper, we kind of point to some directions that we want to try and continue to, to push this kind of work. Um, you know, there's no, we, we mentioned the fact that there's really no single pathway to try and figure out how governance influences quantitative evaluations, uh, whether it's in fisheries or forestry or, you know, some sort of conservation context. So, uh, you know, for me anyway, one of the things that I want to do is continue to pick up on this effort to think about governance in these contexts and, and uh, you know, engage in more collaborations like we have in the Ocean Modeling Forum uh, and just to pursue some of these ideas, uh, you know, test them in different places, see how they're working in, in different management strategy evaluation contexts. I think we can learn a lot from comparing different experiences. I mean, MSC is being used in lots of different places. Um, 
Some of them are very participatory and, and, and engaging with lots of different stakeholders and partners. And so it's looking at those, seeing how they're grappling with these kinds of governance, broader governance challenges and contexts and learning lessons from those experiences and then thinking how we can advance the, the overall process of resource management more effectively. Yeah, and in, uh, from my perspective, I think one of the things that uh, is is incredibly important, especially in this day and age where you know we've got quite a bit of political volatility and uh, a lot of swings between um, governments that can be quite pro versus uh, a little bit um, antagonistic towards uh, sustain more sustainable practices, is uh, the direct integration of uh, of both. But also um, folks like uh, Derek and Jen who study governance uh, from the beginning of the process rather than integrating uh, folks uh, kind of midway through where we've got uh, some either quantitative tools or particular objectives and then injecting those into the process uh, kind of ad hoc or, or later on. Um, these kind of partnerships that when they developed from both first principles at the outset of those meetings. Uh, can give quite different structures and different objectives and different outcomes, uh, depending on, on uh, kind of who's structuring those and how much time is required for individuals to get on a, a, a synergistic uh, path. Yeah, I, it's a great question. I, I've just, as we've been talking, I've been wondering about the ways in which you could kind of do comparative work. You know, we were thinking of one example, but could you compare um, different fisheries in different places in different contexts and, and see how um, playing with inertia and compliance or other sort of pro governance proxies would change outcomes. So I think that there's probably something um, to be gained, lots to be gained through maybe comparative examples rather than single examples. I also, I've, one thing that has struck me as I've learned through the ocean modeling forum process is the scale at which um, a lot of fisheries modeling is done. And we actually, this came um, materialized in a lot of our conversations where where we were of we had indigenous um, rights holders and, and partners in the room and the scale at which those you know community level and did and indigenous knowledge observations happen is at a much smaller scale that than a lot of the modeling happens of course um, and so there are questions I think around the scale at which modeling and observation and observations happen and the scale at which decisions sometimes you know decisions for the entire um, coastline or at least large parts of coastlines are taken and so um, I'm not quite sure how to articulate it better at this stage than just to say I think that there are questions around the scale at which observations models and decisions all are happening and and whether that there'd be possibility to play with that and learn from from that and I think that's a great point to leave it on uh, thank you all very much for joining me today yeah thanks James thank you thank you very much great to be here And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.